following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. We're glad you're here in person. Glad if you're able to watch online. It's good to see you all. Despite the uh, weather outside, it is sticking a little bit. Although I did get a laugh because I was... Uh, speaking with Becky, there were two kids in the neighborhood who couldn't wait. And so this morning at about 9 o'clock, they were sliding down our back hill here. There was just a light coating of white, and the grass was showing through quite a bit, but they were sledding down that hill. So they're getting an early start at it this year. That was fun to see that. So, Would you turn your Bibles to Ezekiel, please? Book of Ezekiel and... uh, Put the scripture reading here later in the service so that the younger uh, folks would be uh, up in junior church already. Jackson's doing okay? Okay, we'll see. All right. Ezekiel 16. We already actually read the first uh, 14 verses of this, I believe, the last time we were here a couple of weeks ago and uh, in conjunction with chapter 15. So let's pick up at chapter 16, verse 15. 15 of Ezekiel. But you trusted in your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. Okay, so again, let's make sure we're thinking spiritually here. Uh, not that there's ever any plain talk in the Bible about harlotry. There's plenty of that. But in this case, we're really talking about spiritual harlotry or idolatry of the people of Israel given under very graphic terms. Verse 16, you took some of your garments and adorned multicolored high places for yourself and played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen nor be. You have also taken your beautiful jewelry from my gold and my silver, which I have given you, and made for yourself male images and played the harlot with them. You took your embroidered garments and covered them, and you set my oil and my incense before them. These are figures of worship here. Also, my food, which I gave you, the pastry of fine flour and honey, which I fed you, you set it before them as sweet incense, and so it was, says the Lord God. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters, whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter that you have slain my children and offered them up? by causing them to pass through the fire. I trust you understand when a child was passed through the fire, he did not come out the other side alive. And in all your abominations and acts of harlotry, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, struggling in your blood. Then it was so after all your wickedness. Woe, woe to you, says the Lord God, that you also built for yourself a shrine and made a high place for yourself in every street. You built your high places at the head of every road and made your beauty to be abhorred. You offered yourself to everyone who passed by and multiplied your acts of harlotry. They couldn't even pick the gods that they wanted to worship. They worshipped all of them. You also committed harlotry with the Egyptians, your very fleshly neighbors, and increased your acts of harlotry to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you, diminished your allotment, and gave you up to the will of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines who were ashamed of your behavior. You also played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were insatiable 
Indeed, you played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. Moreover, you multiplied your acts of harlotry as far as the land of the traitor, Chaldea, and even there, then, rather, you were not satisfied. How degenerate is your heart, says the Lord God, seeing you do all these things, the deeds of a brazen harlot. You erected your shrine at the head of every road and built your high place in every street. You were not like the harlot because you scorned payment. You are an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men make payment to all harlots, but you made your payment to all your lovers and hired them to come to you from all around for your harlotry. You are the opposite of other women in your harlotry because no one solicited you to be a harlot in that you gave payment, but no payment was given to you. Therefore, you are the opposite. Now then, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your filthiness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered and your harlotry with your lovers and with all your abominable idols, because of the blood of your children which you gave to them, there's the children's sacrifice again, surely, therefore, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated, and I will gather them from all around against you and will uncover your nakedness to them so that they may see your nakedness. There's a picture of of military defeat, utter spoil. And I will judge you as women who break wedlock or shed blood are judged. I will bring blood upon you in fury and jealousy. I will also give you into their hand, and you shall throw down... I'm sorry, and they shall throw down your shrines and break down your high places. They shall also strip you of your clothes, take your beautiful jewelry, and leave you naked and bare. And this is indeed what happened. A temple, the Jerusalem temple was just stripped. Gold, bronze, silver, everything of value, all the articles, basins, tools, everything. They shall also bring up an assembly against you, and they shall stone you with stones, and thrust you through with their swords. They shall burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. And I will make you cease playing the harlot and you shall no longer hire lovers. So I will lay to rest my fury toward you and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be quiet and be angry no more. Because you did not remember the days of your youth, but agitated me with all these things, surely I will also recompense your deeds on your own head says the Lord God, and you shall not commit lewdness in addition to all your abominations. Indeed, everyone who quotes prophets, sorry, Proverbs, will use this proverb against you, like mother, like daughter. You are your mother's daughter, loathing husband and children, and you are the sister of your sisters who loathe their husbands and children. Your mother was a Hittite, and your father an Amorite. Your elder sister is Samaria, who dwells with her daughters to the north of you, and your younger sister, who dwells to the south of you, is Sodom and her daughters. See, the nations here, the city-states, are pictured as women. You did not walk in their ways, nor act according to their abominations, but as if that were too little, you became more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. Oh, that's a charge, isn't it? Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. Samaria did not commit half of your sins, 
But you have multiplied your abominations more than they and have justified your sisters by all the abominations which you have done. In other words, they look righteous compared to Jerusalem. That's how bad it was. You who judged your sisters, hear your, or bear your own shame also because the sins which you committed were more abominable than theirs. They are more righteous than you. Yes, be disgraced also and bear your own shame because you justified your sisters. When I bring back their captives, the captives of Sodom and her daughters and the captives of Samaria and her daughters, then I will also bring back the captives of your captivity among them that you may bear your own shame and be disgraced by all that you did when you comforted them. When your sister Sodom and her daughters return to their former state and Samaria and her daughters return to their former state, then you and your daughters will return to your former state. For your sister Sodom was not a was not a byword in your mouth in the days of your pride, before your wickedness was uncovered. It was like the time of the reproach of the daughters of Syria and all those around her and the daughters of the Philistines who despise you everywhere. You have paid for your lewdness and your abomination, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, who despised the oath by breaking the covenant. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your older and your younger sisters, for I will give them to you for daughters, but not because of my covenant with you. And I will establish my covenant with you. Then you will know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth any more because of your shame when I provide you an atonement for all you have done, says the Lord God. Well, that's a significant little section of Scripture, isn't it? I uh, find that very interesting, and as I was reading that, I was thinking, you know, it's far better for you, me, us, humans, if we turn to Christ and allow the wrath of God to be poured out upon him on our behalf, then take it ourselves. This is what these folks were seeing, a measure of the wrath of God for their sin on their own heads, he said. You don't want to do that. You don't want to receive the wrath of God yourself. It's too much. And so we commend that atonement that was mentioned here just at the end of the chapter that was wrought in Christ and will be fully exposed, if you will, during the uh, time when the everlasting covenant is made with the nation of Israel, that new covenant, which will be made with them at that point in the future when the Lord returns. All right, I mentioned earlier we'd be in the book of Acts today, so if you would turn there now for our message, and it's in chapter 16 that I'd like you to turn. Concerning the uh, history of the teaching that I've done here just in the few years that I've been at the pulpit, I looked back and I saw that I had preached uh, kind of a, what I call a light series on the book of Philippians starting in 2009 and off and on through early 2012. So it's been basically a decade since we've been in the book of Philippians. And I have had in my work plan to go through it in a much more detailed fashion than I did before. And so that's what we're going to begin to do, a series in the book of Philippians. And we're going to find out a lot about 
uh, Paul and uh, the people there in Philippi and learn quite a lot, I'm sure, in the text of the book. But in order to properly introduce the book, I wanted to start this time in Acts, where the church was founded a few years before the Apostle Paul actually wrote the letter to them that we know as the book of Philippians. And so in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, we learn about this situation starting in verse number 6. And it's a lengthy section of Scripture which we'll try to read through and comment on in the time that we have remaining this morning to introduce ourselves to the place called Philippi and the people of that place. And I'm not going to give you a full accounting of all the demographics and and all the history that could be found and searched out about Philippi during the first century. Um, Maybe I'll do some more research on that and share some of those results with you at another time. But for this morning, let's start in verse number 6, and uh, I'll read, and then we'll make some comments as we go along. It says, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, now, what, what's happening here is that the Apostle Paul, Silas, uh, and Timothy, who has recently joined them in chapter 16, are uh, on a missionary journey, which we call the second missionary tour. After the first one in Acts 13 and 14, they concluded with a lengthy church council, a meeting in Acts 15, about the question of how is it that Gentiles can be saved. And, of course, this was key to the Apostle Paul's ministry because he was going around preaching not only to Jews but also to Gentiles. And so it had to be clear what the correct Christian doctrine was for them to to deal with and to preach to those Gentiles that they were ministering to. And then the end of that council, uh, the Lord guided the situation such that there were going to be two missionary teams And the two teams, one was led by Paul, the other Barnabas, there was a division between them, and so they actually, it was over John Mark, this individual, and so then they went their separate ways. Barnabas says, uh, went to uh, Cyprus, and uh, Paul and and the others uh, that were with him or would be with him went and strengthened the churches that they were, uh, had planted before, and then they were going to extend that work even farther. So Paul chose Silas, and now it says, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, central Turkey today, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And after they'd come to Mysia, they're kind of generally heading uh, northwest on your map if you're looking at Turkey from where Galatia is, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So the situation was they're going through the region of Galatia. They're heading to the northwest. They say, well, let's turn south to Asia, which is where Ephesus was. Well, for some reason, they couldn't go there. Why? What was the, what was the reason the text gives? They were forbidden by the Spirit to preach the word in Asia. I don't know what that exactly looks like, but we're just going to leave it at what the text says and say, look, they knew that they weren't supposed to go there at that time. In fact, they would go to Ephesus later, and Paul would spend a significant amount of time there. But now was not the time. So he says, okay, I can't, I can't, you know, I'm heading northwest. I can't go this way. I'll try to go this way to Bithynia, to the farther north of Turkey. Nope, can't go there either. And so, you know, sometimes you might wonder when the doors are closed, 
what am I supposed to do now? Why are these doors closed? Where am I headed? You know, I can't go this way, I can't go that way. Well, the Lord says, go straight ahead. And, and that's what he does by means of a vision. It came down to Troas, near the sea, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Come. Now, after he'd seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. That's why the doors were closed, because there was a wide double door open right in front of them to go across and into the continent of Europe to bring the gospel of Christ to that place. And so he concluded that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them as well. And so they began to get about doing that and making the plans to make that short journey over there. Now, they are going to land up in a city called Philippi. Verse 11 says, Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Let's pause our reading. Trust the Lord to help us as we look at this. And first, we're going to look at some key facts about the city. Paul and Silas planted the church in Philippi, as this text is going to tell us. Uh, They did it around 50 A.D. during their second missionary journey, Paul's second Philippi, it says here, if you look at that in verse 12, it says it's a colony. Now, you overlook that maybe because you just say, okay, it's a colony. Move on quickly to whatever, you know, where's the real meaning of this text? And I understand what you're thinking, but that was a significant little piece of information because a colony was a place where there were significant benefits for the citizens of that city. Um, For example... The legal advantages included that the citizens of Philippi in Macedonia were counted as if they were virtual citizens of Italy. They weren't in Italy, but they were as good as citizens of Italy. And you can go back and look at the history of the the battles that occurred in this area and uh, Octavian and Antony and Brutus and Cassius and then Octavian and Antony and Cleopatra and all this and it's just... It's crazy history, you know. Some of you like that history and eat it up. Um, But the point is now, at this time, it had become a colony and it had great advantages for the residents there. There were also tax advantages to those in that place. And finally, there uh, there was also a a higher level of autonomy and self-government in that city. So it wasn't kind of put upon as hard by the Roman Empire as some of other cities in outlying areas. It also says that not only was it a colony, but it was a foremost city. Now, we know that it was not a provincial capital. It was not a district capital. So there's been a question as, what does it mean that it was a foremost or first city? And I think this translation is just fine. It was, it was in other words, a very well-known prominent place in that whole region. Everybody knew about Philippi. It's like, you know, everybody knows about New York or Chicago or Los Angeles 
uh, and then the other cities kind of fall lower down on the, on the scale. But people knew in that region Philippi was a significant place, and perhaps, perhaps some of the residents began to feel a sense of superiority. I'm from Philippi, and I've got special privileges, and I'm superior to those people who live in kind of the outlying areas of those cities. Now, the Jewish population there seems to be quite small. Paul usually would go, when he came to a new city, where would he go? He'd go to the synagogue. Well, there's no mention of a synagogue here, which we think means there was no synagogue here. Uh, They had to have 10 men, a minion, to have a synagogue. They just couldn't get two people together and have a synagogue. So, Uh, At least that's how it is, and I presume how it was. It was a very small group. In fact, it says he came there after the call of a man in his vision, and he found women praying, as usual. Yeah, often women more spiritual than the men, I would say. Sad, Sad to say for us men, but indeed, that was the case. Several women there having a prayer meeting. One of them was named Lydia, as we'll find out. But there, there was no, I mean, they didn't have a place to meet. They went to the riverside when the weather, I guess, was good, and they had a prayer meeting there. What a nice, what a nice thing. Imagine, maybe we should have men's prayer some summer Saturday morning next to a river and enjoy the outdoors a little bit. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Now, also, it's interesting, Luke, Dr. Luke May himself, who's the author of Acts, remember, may himself have become a resident of Philippi. Why do I say that? Well, he comes with Paul and uh, Timothy and Silas to the place, verse 10 says, now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. Luke appears to include himself, we, in this. And then we ran a straight course, uh, verse 11 and so on. But then later on, Everything changes to they, 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 Paul, Silas. They're in, in prison, and uh, they get out of prison. And then verse 17, chapter 17, verse 1, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis, and uh, Paul, and they, and so on and so forth, and you don't see we again until chapter 20, we or us, until chapter 20, verse 5. So this is kind of an interesting little clue that maybe Luke stayed behind in Philippi. It says, um, Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, and it gives a few other names, Aristarchus, uh, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus. These men, going on ahead, waited for us at Troas. We read about Troas earlier, didn't we? They went from Troas over to Neapolis and then Philippi. And where are they actually right now? Well, Paul went in verse 1 of chapter 20 to Macedonia. So it appears that they left Luke in Philippi, perhaps to oversee the work of the church that was just now planted. They went away, and when they came back through in chapter 20, they picked up Luke again and traveled with him some more, just by way of these pronouns here. It's kind of an interesting story, I think, and a thing to think about. Now, I want to talk about the history and acts of the Philippian church, and we've gotten into it a little bit. Let me read another segment of it here. Came to Philippi, verse 12, 
They stayed there. They went out on the Sabbath day. On Saturday, they went out to the riverside. They found out there are people praying out there. Interesting, probably asked around to see what was, what was cooking spiritually in the city. Verse 14, now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. Now that was a very well-known city for its dye, D-Y-E, business. And she was from there. Uh, she worshiped God, uh, so, which means that she was um, a God-fearing Gentile, perhaps like a almost proselyte to Judaism. It says she worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now it happened as we went to prayer. So they continued to go to this meeting, evidently, and try to build it up into a group that believed in the Lord. They, a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination or sorcery met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. So she was a girl who was somehow demon-possessed, and these masters were taking advantage of her. I'm going to call her a human trafficking victim, even though it might not be in the traditional sense that we use that word or that phrase. But this girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaimed to us the way of salvation. The broken clock is right those two times. Yes, the demon actually knew more than the people of the city knew. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed. Okay, don't use that as your life verse now. You say, see, Paul was annoyed, so I can be annoyed. Well, you know, evil should annoy us in a way, in a spiritual way. Righteous indignation, of course. Paul, in his state of agitation, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. He wouldn't have done that if there was no good purpose to do it. But first of all, she needed deliverance. Second of all, he didn't need the hassle of this person tagging along, uh, interrupting his ministry all the time. Remember, the Lord would come and a uh, demon would say, you know, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. He'd say, no, quiet, come out, don't tell everybody this, it's not my time, and so on and so forth. So then it says, but when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Now, I believe that it is a real thing that was happening with this girl. That is, there is such a thing as demon possession. It is real, and we don't experience it so much in our society, in the circles in which we probably you know, orbit, so to speak. But demons do exist. This kind of thing does happen. Was she able to tell the future? Apparently, how accurately was she telling the future? We don't have any idea. But somehow enough that these guys were cashing in on her a spiritual uh, you know, connection to the underworld. And it says they were very upset when their profit motive was undercut. They had no compunction about using a young girl to make money. It is shameful. And they brought them, Paul and Silas, to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. 
Well, they don't exceedingly trouble the city. They exceedingly trouble your pocketbook, but they had to puff up the charges some. And although it's true that they were Jewish people, um, that's really not the point. They were Christians. And uh, so these you know, owners, you could say owners, masters of this slave girl, were upset, and they just kind of spit out, well, they're Jews. They didn't understand that they were preaching a new doctrine in the, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, then they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe. Well, that's not really true either. Sadly, the demon-possessed girl spoke more truth than these men who did not have a demon possession problem. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. How, how humiliating, how shameful. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. We'll pause there for a second. After the Spirit had hindered the team from visiting Asia and Bithynia, it became apparent why. There was a vision from a man, it's actually from God, but God used the vision of a man in Macedonia crying out to the missionaries to come and help them. This is like the arrangement that God made in Acts chapter 10 for Cornelius. We mentioned Cornelius this morning. He's a God-fearing man. God sent an angel to him. Look, you send for Peter. Peter will tell you words of life by which you must be saved. He did that. Peter came, preached the gospel. He and his household were saved. Acts chapter 10, you can look that up. We talked about that earlier. This is not the usual way that missions happens, but this was the first movement of the gospel ever in history to the land of Europe. So it's quite significant. We don't have visionary Macedonian calls today to go do missions work. We know that we're supposed to go to all the continents, all the countries of the world and preach the gospel. But God guided the apostles in the very early and significant steps of mission work. He guided them to Samaria. Uh, He guided them to Cornelius, to uh, Ethiopian eunuch, to Europe, guided Paul throughout Asia Minor and uh, up and across the northern part of the Mediterranean and so on. Now, although we don't see the visionary type of call today, we do see Macedonian calls frequently or hear of them. I know, I'm just going to illustrate it this way, you know, we don't, you know, people don't get it through some vision from heaven, but rather by way of normal communication. Christians in a city that has no sound church are pleading for someone to come there to help them, someone who knows what to do and how to do it. I know of at least, I'm thinking of four, maybe six cities in South America where this thing, this kind of thing has happened, where one or two families are in a city, they have no church. They reach out to a gospel mission, a South America missionary, and say, can you come and help us? That's this. One of the saddest realities is that there are not enough Christians to go and fill those posts. There are, I could probably take you to a map, just of South America, Chile, Argentina, and Uruguay, since I know those the best in my mission activity, and point out at least a dozen cities that we, if we had missionaries, we could send them there today and have them start planting churches. And that's 
that's like super low estimate. There are probably dozens of such cities. The Lord said it. The harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are so pathetically few. And it's a strange thing, actually, dear believers, because in many established churches today, the churches are pleading with the people to come. But in other places, people are pleading for the church to come. Did you get the play on words of the reversal there? We stand as a as an established church. Forty years we've been here. We're calling people from Ann Arbor, even our own members, come, be here, worship with us, listen to the word, fellowship, uh, pray with us. The church is calling the people, but in this situation, the people are calling the church. They want a church. Can you imagine if you didn't have a church? What a privilege that we have a good church. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord that he has permitted us to have this, this ministry. It's, 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 it's really rare. If you look the world, the, the globe over, there are places where there are no good churches. Christians, people who may have heard the word on the radio or, or on the Internet, they have no place to go on Sunday morning. What do they do? Well, Paul was all about fixing that problem, wasn't he? Silas, Timothy, they were missionaries. What are missionaries? Missionaries are simply church planting evangelists. There's not a separate kind of you know, category of super Christians called missionaries. They are those gifted to evangelism and thus to start churches in various places. So missionary is just another name for a church planter who's engaged in the Great Commission. Lydia was the first convert. She was a God-fearing, near proselyte of the Jewish faith. Notice, though, how she was saved. If you go down and look at Lydia in verse number uh, 14, she was already worshiping God, but then it says at the end of 14, notice, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. It doesn't say that she herself opened her heart, although if you asked her, have you opened your heart to the Lord? She would say, absolutely I have. Because when the Lord opens your heart, you open your heart. You know, Both occur at the same moment. But the text of Scripture tells us the Lord opened her heart. Has the Lord opened your heart? Has the Lord opened your heart or is it closed, crusted over, dark, unresponsive to the things of God? I pray that God will open your heart if that's the case. Lydia's heart was opened. The apostolic explanation is that the Lord did the opening of the heart. They, then she obeyed what Paul spoke about. She opened her heart in response to that. When God, sorry, when Paul rather spoke the gospel of God, God illuminated her mind, opened her heart, saved her, gave her new spiritual life, forgave her sins. She was saved by God then in the Christian sense of that word. She'd not been a Christian up to that point because she didn't know of Christ. She just knew the Old Testament revelation that she had been aware of. She did not know the substitutionary work of the Lord nor the Holy Spirit. And what we understand from this text is that it's necessary for God to work in a person's heart for them to be 
born again. What a wonder this is. God graciously opened my heart to believe in him. Now, this doesn't take away from the fact that I understand the gospel and I believe the gospel, but God worked in me to bring me to that point. What a gift. What a gift. Now, this city, you have to look at the city kind of like Paul did through spiritual eyeglasses. He saw a very wicked place, a very materialistic, very secular place. Is that what you see when you look out of the windows of your house? Better not be inside your house that you see a secular place. But outside your house, as you scan with those spiritual binoculars, what do you see? Paul goes there and he sees this city is not Christianized at all. Very little influence of godliness here. We know this because there was demonic activity paraded about the city, profited from by these men, a poor slave girl uh, enslaved by masters who used her dark prophetic ability to make money. We don't know about those fortunes that she told, if they were accurate or not, but people were paying for them. And although she was right in one thing, that these men are servants of the Most High God and preach the way of salvation, it was a mess. Societies today which have had no influence of Christ for generations naturally are given over to demonism and false religions. What this girl was, being, was doing and her masters were doing with her was wicked. Deuteronomy 18.10 says those who practice divination. That is, that is deviance. Divination is deviation from the ways of God and is not tolerable. We ought to be thankful for the heritage that we have as Americans, because of the spiritual emphasis that was involved in the founding of our country and the ongoing of the, of the law of the country, but recognize that as the society moves farther away from God, demon activity will naturally increase because as God goes out, something fills the vacuum. You've seen it. You've seen it. When they got prayer out of the schools and kicked God out of the schools, what came in? All kinds of trash and evil behavior. What do you expect? Don't blame God. You kicked him out. And so as a society becomes less godly, it becomes more open to demon activity. And that's what we see. You see activities and things you ungodly things and crimes that you just couldn't imagine years ago, and it's because this kind of thing is going on increasingly so. um, Think of societies that have no Christian influence for thousands of years, filled with this kind of thing. The nation of Israel itself, as blessed as they were with the kind of history they had and the, the service of God and the oracles of God and the word of God and the prophets, when Jesus came, the place was filled with demonic activity. Why? Because they really, although they might have sublimated some of that activity, some of the external idolatry, they still had it in their hearts. Ezekiel chapter 16 showed that they were fully given over to paganism, at least at that time. Well, the masters were displeased because Paul cast out the demon and they told lies about him and so on. Um, I'm going to assume 
just give me the license to do this, the sanctified license to do this, that this girl became part of the church of Philippi. I don't know that, but I know that she would feel a great debt of gratitude to the Apostle Paul for releasing her from this terrible bondage and, and, and being freed from it. And so we have Lydia and her family. We have the young girl and the third convert, and Philippi was a prison guard. He was as unlikely to believe the gospel as you think some of your family members are unlikely to believe the gospel. A very unlikely suspect, so to speak. Now, I, I don't know that he oversaw the beating of the Apostle Paul and Silas. I tend to think that that happened earlier in the day, and this guy has the graveyard shift. He's watching the prison overnight. I mean, it, the same prison guard didn't go 24-7. Obviously, they probably had shifts where workers came in, and this guy was, you know, uh, lower in rank and probably, you know, you got the midnight shift, pal, uh, or you got to work this weekend. And so he had, to, he had to do that, but he was in this prison, and uh, the earthquake occurs here. Let's look at verse 25. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake. By the way, what do you think they were singing? Sometimes people portray it as singing, you know, just hymns of joy while they're there in those stocks. I, I kind of thought, you know, can I imagine them singing, you know, like, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream, merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Maybe not. Maybe some of the psalms, maybe some of the, 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 the laments, God, how long is it going to be, you know, appropriate to the situation, but singing, you know, hymns to God, certainly. And the prisoners were listening to them. They were trusting in the Lord. And then there was this great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken. Obviously, a supernatural timing, if not just a purely supernatural event altogether. And immediately, the doors were opened, all the doors, and everyone's chains were loosed. That's obviously supernatural. The keeper of the prison sees, you know, uh, well, he's sleeping, but he sees his life flash before his eyes at that moment because as a guard, you're going to be accountable for you. If you lose the prisoners, you're done. So he's going to commit suicide. And uh, he's finished, he thinks, and Paul says, hey, wait, stop, don't do it. And uh, they preach the gospel to him. This man is obviously interested in what it takes to be saved. Now, I believe, and I preached this when I preached this 10 years ago or more, that this man is not simply saying, what must I do to be saved from the consequences of the prisoners escaping? He saw, as I said, his life passed before him, and he said, I am doomed, I am going out of this life, what is going to become of me when I stand before God, who he knew, and he's got some accountability. People know this stuff, friends. They know they're not just going to get away with murder, so to speak, even if they think they're pretty decent people. But this prison guard, I don't know if he thought he was pretty decent, he probably maybe thought he was pretty rotten. Was God going to accept me? Where am I going to go? Am I going to go to heaven or hell? So Paul and Silas explained to him the way of salvation. And in a verse that we should all memorize, verse 31, they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You, and this is also applicable to your household, you must all believe the gospel. So make sure you know that verse. You never know when you're going to come upon somebody in a dire situation that has 10 minutes to live 
and you need to preach them the gospel, what are you going to use? This is a good one. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Call upon the Lord and be saved. God sent his son that you might not die eternally. Believe in him. The door is open, but in 10 minutes the door might be closed for that soul that you come upon. Know the word of God, my friends, so that you can use it at a moment's notice. And so a new church was born. The group that were made up the initial members of the church included a saleswoman in the textile business and her family, a corrections officer from the prison industrial complex and his family, and perhaps a younger woman who had been demon-possessed. You can imagine her. She was some young woman, probably very disheveled in her appearance and abused by her masters. And she was restored and free. And her complexion and her appearance was totally different now. She radiated the joy of God. Rescued out of human trafficking. Rescued from being possessed by an oracle demon and from the masters who used her for financial gain and who knows what else. Others joined over time, but this was the start of the church. And it's interesting to me to see the, the diversity of that early church somebody high up in the business world and somebody you know, kind of low down in the prison uh, complex and then this girl who was trafficked. Uh, and all the families were, these, both, both of the families, the family members believed the message and believed the gospel and were baptized. Now it tells us the authorities, we just quickly come to the end here, the authorities illegally beat and imprisoned Paul and Silas without a proper trial. It says they were brought to the magistrates, remember that? And uh, the multitude rose up against them, and uh, they were beaten with rods. Just because you go to the judge doesn't mean you get justice. They went to the judge, and, or magistrates, plural, and, but they didn't get justice. Um, the trial wasn't legitimate. And the evangelists, uh, after they spent a night in prison, didn't let that fact go unnoticed. They said, we are Romans. And you are not allowed to do this to us. Roman law is clear. You cannot beat a man who's uncondemned. No condemnation sentence was passed against us. We were not legitimately found to be guilty of anything. And so they forced the authorities in that town to humble themselves and walk their little feet down to the jail and get these guys out. They weren't going to just let them kind of just slip it under the rug. And how could they do that? Well, they had power. The power was they could go to the higher authorities and say, these guys put us in jail, what's going to happen to them? Well, those authorities could have been beaten themselves and put in jail or worse. Now, Paul was very gracious. He didn't do that to them, but he did put them on notice. And that fact may have saved the church from persecution later on because the leaders of that community would have said, wait a minute, Paul's got something on us. We better, not, we better treat that church with kid gloves. Just take it easy. Let them be what they're going to be. And I think you and I, my friends, need to also do the same thing today. We need to stand up for our rights as individuals in the society in which we find ourselves and make use of those rights to do the purposes that God has given to us. What are those? Evangelizing. Remember, our brother asked me afterwards. Making disciples... Everywhere we go, when we gather them in, we worship together, pray together, praise God, uh, we help one another, 
We, uh, we, we listen to the apostles' doctrine, breaking of bread, baptism, prayer. Those are the kinds of things that we're to do, and we're to stand up against the authorities when they prevent us from doing those things. I'm very serious about that, my friends. We cannot allow people to tell us, you can't worship God. We are going to worship God whether anyone else likes it or not because that's a command of God, and plus, we love God. We want and we love one another, do we not? Yes, yeah, so Paul used his citizenship to his advantage and to help the church. That's, it's not, not going to help forever, my friends. You know, they'll persecute you anyway, and they'll do all that sort of stuff, but at least we can stand up for as long as we can stand up. The uh, guard... And Lydia showed early and significant spiritual fruit. I mean, think of the guard. He gets saved. Immediately, he brings prisoners into his own home that night, washes their wounds, feeds them because they hadn't had a decent meal, and they were in severe pain, and he helps them. Before and after they went into prison, Lydia said, if you count me worthy, come and stay in my home. That's spiritual fruit. She's offering Christian hospitality on day one. Some of us have trouble offering hospitality on year 50. Don't do that. Christians are to be hospitable. But anyway, show some kind of, you know, fruit. And you have to realize this was, I mean, they're harboring Paul and Silas who were just, or about to be in jail. The the possibility of persecution was real for them. Okay, this was like, helping a Jewish person out of Germany in World War II. Uh, Would you have opened your home to be on the Underground Railroad during that time? Would you open yourself up for the possibility of persecution to help people to be freed from what? Utter persecution, in this case, Christian persecution? Would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing, willing to welcome people into your home, even people who were imprisoned for the sake of the gospel? People were saved. They were steadfast under persecution. A church was born. Paul will now interact with that church over the course of the upcoming years several times. He comes and he goes and comes and goes, and then he writes them a letter to thank them for what he says is your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And he's thanking them for supporting him in his work. It's a tremendous, tremendous example for us as Christians. And then the things that he says there, we can't kind of make a synopsis of the book in one word or one sentence, but we'll see what it is as we get into it. And so it's a wonderful book. So uh, join me on a journey through the book of Philippians uh, as we do that over the next upcoming months. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the book of Acts as it records the opening of this church in Philippi and the new young believers that are made there in that city and joined together in an assembly of your people to worship and to support missions because they themselves were the result of missions. And Lord, I pray that you would Fill our church with uh, scriptural joy, 
and with the good knowledge of this book that it might guide us in our practice, help us to maintain a steady course until the Lord returns. In Jesus' name, amen.